and welcome to The Bunker with me, Dorian Linsky. The rural voter, we argue, is a new and unprecedented phenomenon in American politics, and it is a powerfully divisive force because of those institutional and political advantages given unintentionally to rural America. So say Nicholas F. Jacobs and Daniel M. Shea in a new book called The Rural Voter, The Politics of Place and the Disuniting of America. The authors use rigorous data to puncture some of the stereotypes about the politics and priorities of rural voters. They both grew up in rural areas and now live in rural Maine, so they know whereof they speak. Nicholas Jacobs, Assistant Professor of Government at Colby College, joins me now. Hi, Nick. Thanks for talking. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So it feels like, to me, uh, reading the introduction, that the main impetus for this book was irritation with other uh, accounts of rural voters. Were you um, annoyed into writing it? Uh, yeah, I guess you didn't have to read between the lines too much on that one. It, it's certainly one of the reasons. Um, I had been writing about rural politics for a number of years, even before everybody else started caring about rural politics with the election of Donald Trump. And you know, those those were the quaint days when you were sort of just making arguments, academic theorizing, and then Trump brought this all to uh, to people's agenda. And you know that's not to say that everybody was getting it wrong. Um, we are certainly indebted to a number of scholars who are doing this type of work, talking to rural communities, trying to make sense of of why uh, the, the rightward shift has been so pronounced over the last couple of years. Um, but you know, really, there was never a a there was no account out there that tried to understand it both historically. You know, really placing these shifts in, in in deep historical context, viewing it as something more than just one particular individual or candidate, and there was nothing uh, that we felt was uh, satisfactory in sorting out all these competing explanations. Everybody had their own pet theory, would promote that and only that, and yet we all know that the world is complicated. A lot of these things can be true at the same time. And what you're doing is speaking to a lot of people in rural America. Um, so how many people did you survey? Right. So to get at, uh, to get at these problems, and, and I, I appreciate your jumping off point, I think it's a spot on, right? To get past the problem that Often studies of rural America or ruralness, even in a comparative context, can only focus on a single area. And often they can, for a variety of analytical reasons or methodological choices, really not disassociate or dis discriminate between competing explanations. You know, we developed what and we've done a number of interviews, and nobody's challenged us on this one, and I'm pretty confident to say is, is the largest survey of rural voters ever conducted, um, which was 10,000 rural Americans um, from every part uh, of the United States, balanced across the various regions so that we were getting rural New Englanders just as likely as we were getting rural New Mexicans, rural Floridians. We compared that sample of, of rural Americans with about 4,000 non-rural Americans. Uh, and that allowed us to go into the weeds uh, of, of ruralness, uh, looking at regional differences among the rural population, always uh, averaging that out against urban America and suburban America, which are about 80% of the American population. Yeah, one thing you do is you point out how many um, you know, beliefs are shared between, say, um, Trump voters in rural and Trump voters in urban areas. So once you've accounted for 
you know, age, education, income, race, all these different factors. What are the most distinctive features of the rural voter? It sounds a little like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let me let me elaborate a little bit. Like the most distinguishing feature of ruralness is a sense among rural people that they are distinct. A lot of it's in their in their heads that we are a marginalized class. We are a class that does not have the same amount of influence and perceived importance in modern America. Uh, we are members of communities that are increasingly looked down upon by decision makers. We are members of a community that are not portrayed realistically in pop culture or or the mainstream media. How real are those grievances? Like how how tangible are they? Sort of the insults or the condescension or the misrepresentations? Like do, do they? Do they entirely have a point or is part of that um, a sort of self-perpetuating idea that, that, that makes that seem worse than it is? I think this is a great question and it's the area of my, my uh, research moving forward. It's a, a whole host of scholars are really digging into this. On the one hand, I can look at this and say, a lot of this is in your head. You, you've been You've been subject to crafty narratives that create the impression that you are more divided uh, than you really are, right? So if you look at objective statistics on income inequality, for instance, right? We know income inequality in specific communities is a major force politically and determining how people perceive the world and how communities are actually treated. You know, income inequality in rural America is no higher than it is in urban America. So, you know, if you just take an objective statistic like that, you'd think that there would be a common maybe political story that could be told both to people in rural communities that are suffering from historically unprecedented levels of income inequality and urban communities and say, hey, this isn't working for either of you. You know, here's what we can do. At, at the other, you know, so that I think would be the middle ground. I think I do reject the the far you know, rural deprivation doesn't have a leg to stand on type arguments that come from, quite frankly, a lot of urban economists. Uh, Paul Krugman and I have gotten into it a little bit where, oh, well, rural America disproportionately receives higher percent of the federal budget. Uh, they get more in terms of welfare payments. I just wrote something up last week, right? So it is true that they're going to get more money from the the historically unprecedented Investments in from the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and, and infrastructure bill, but at the same time, a lot of those things, and I'll just pick another example, such as uh, farm subsidies, right? A lot of those benefits that we classify as rural benefits really are making stuff cheaper and affordable for all of us, right? So when a rural community gets a farm subsidy. It's more than likely going to a giant agribusiness that has displaced the family farms in that community, and it's making food on the supermarket shelves cheaper for the rural community and the urban community. So, I, 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 I do reject a lot of that. In the middle ground, I, I find some, some arguments I'm sympathetic with. 
on the other end of the uh, spectrum, on the on the rural sympathy arguments, I think there are lived experiences that many rural people do have that do make sense, right? Like, do make it more than just being hoodwinked. I wonder whether, like, how big a component of of um, of this sort of turn to the right that this grievance politics is, because Trump is objectively uh, a wealthy urban elite. Does he resonate so much in those areas because he hates the same people and channels those kind of emotions more than because he's promising something positive? I know he has made sort of, you know, he did make noises towards, um, you know, the concerns of miners in Virginia or whatever. I'm not sure how much he actually did for them and whether it's more on the on the negative side that he, he sort of bridges that gap to rural America. It doesn't make sense at first glance why why he would have such popular appeal in rural America, given his background, uh, given his the story that he's spent decades creating for himself as to what it means to be successful in this country. There's a there's a, a few parts to this story. The first, you know, this is the historical aspect of the work where we really try to understand developments in rural partisanship outside of the Trump campaign, right? And and so if you were to look and and I forget, you know, there's 62 figures. It's one of the early figures in the book <laughs> where we look at rural America's support for the Democratic Party going back to 1824, and we zero in on this 40-year period after the 1980s, where it just drops off. And if you look at the dot that is Donald Trump in 2016, he is the continuation of a trend line, meaning Donald Trump does better in rural America to the same degree over Mitt Romney that Mitt Romney did over John McCain, and that John McCain did over George W. Bush's second election, right? He he fits a trend line, and Joe Biden actually sort of made up some ground uh, in in sort of not reversing the curve, but uh, in flattening the curve. Excuse me. Um, now, I think that's important to understanding Trump. That said, right, no Republican candidate has done as good in rural America as Donald Trump has been. And so you're right. You look at the things that would make him seem attractive, the fact that he actually shows up in rural America, um, the fact that he is sort of, I don't know, I, I remember a moment in the 2016 campaign where I didn't think he was going to win, but I, I realized that I'd be writing about Donald Trump more than I thought I was going to be when he won the nomination, that this wasn't going to be a blowout, that he was going to be a force. And I remember watching him at one of these rallies, and it was a rally in rural America, and the local fire department, right? So this local community had given him the the chief, the battalion hat, and he kept putting it on and taking it off. And he was playing with the audience in, in that characteristic Donald Trump way. And I just realized that he actually, it, it's clear that he at least can pretend that he enjoys being in these parts of America. And you compare that with his opponent, 
right? So this would be on the not pro-Trump, but the anti-Clinton side of things. You compare it with Hillary Clinton, who members of the Trump campaign told me refused to show up in any county that Bernie Sanders won, <laughs> right? Didn't even go to these states, right? The critical states, let alone mm. the rural parts in these states. Because, I mean, yeah, it was a bad campaign, but I think personally she gave us insights into, into that strategy after she lost because she was proud not to represent those places, right? She gets a lot of credit. You know, we talk all the time about the deplorables comment, but before a, a large audience of bankers, she, you know, she relished the fact that she won the places moving ahead. And she was happy that she lost the places moving behind. You know, I of course they're not gonna vote for you. Well, does this trend line start? With Reagan, because you explain how for a long time, like regional politics in America, like the idea of the, the South as a block, was more important than urban versus rural. Um, and the Democratic presidents, Lyndon Johnson, Jimmy Carter, who was famously a, had a peanut farm, both had rural upbringings. Then things start to change in a big way. The polarization starts to grow and the sense of rural America as its own um, thing and an increasingly conservative thing. Now, is that largely because the Republicans under Reagan found a way to speak to them, realised that this was a new, um, you know, this was a new demographic that they could kind of own, that they could steal away from the Democrats? Or is it, th there was all this systemic, all this systemic stuff to do with the, um, to do with the economy or to do with you know, demographic change? Like how, how much was it, how much was it intentional? How much was it that this was just moving towards the Republicans anyway? I mean, you captured the academic's answer, which is it's a little bit of both. <laughs> Good to know, yeah. Our ability to go back in time and to do the type of individual level analysis that we do among 10,000 rural voters, right? we can't do that in 1980. It's actually hard just to even find a, a, a representative sample of rural America in 1980, given the fact that it was, it was, it just wasn't something people asked 40 years ago. It wasn't one of those divides. So you're right. I think in the story of the top down, there is a a shift in the thinking of Republican strategists in the era after Nixon, in the era after sort of the the attempts to manage the liberal state and to really create a more aggressive conservatism. Um, and, and this is a part of the larger realignment in American partisanship, right? Where in the post-1960s, in the aftermath of the Great Society, you know, Republicans are going to do better in the suburbs. Republicans are going to break the monopoly that the Democrats historically had had for a hundred years in the South. And this is where you start to see that rhetoric about real America emerge. Reagan famously draws on the image of, a, of the family farmer uh, negotiating with the government bureaucrat in, in his speech about the nine words you have to fear in American politics the most is, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help, right? I think I gave it in over nine words, but that general, <laughs> yeah. that general Reagan idea. 
So there is a, a, a and this is deliberate, and this is uh, this is attached. The outreach to rural America is also attached to uh, the incorporation of Christian evangelicals into the the modern American right. At the same time, you know there are forces. I think that are that are bottom up, or as you said, systemic. There are changes in the rural economy, which is not just you know changes in agricultural politics, which are vast. Some Americans might remember farm aid of the 1980s, but really, farm aid is about big farms that had the uh, ability to get on the national agenda. The real change in American agriculture takes place in the 60s and 70s that led to the consolidation of farms that were able to you know extract greater greater amounts of attention from the federal government and manufacturing but because by the 1970s the bulk of your manufacturing has left urban america it's it's become a a, a lifeline to rural communities and you know 1994 is the line in the sand when America just fully adopts the, well, don't worry about it, a rising tide is going to lift all boats once we integrate you into the global economy. Your jobs will go overseas, but you'll get cheaper goods. And it's very clear who lost that side of the uh, arrangement. Well, let's flip uh, the resentment idea here that um, I was surprised to learn what a small proportion of America rural counties were, a small um, proportion of uh, voting population. And you mentioned in the quote that I, I led with these institutional and political advantages, and people will, will probably be aware um, of the way that every state gets two, vote, uh, two seats in the Senate, and this favors small states. Not all, of course, uh, are small states are rural or conservative. But do people, do, do sort of urban people, urban Democrats in particular, like, do they have a legitimate beef with the way that things are set up, which gives, far from, you know, silencing the voice of rural voters, actually gives them disproportionate influence? Right. So, uh, on the first perceptions question, I do have evidence, I, I don't think it actually is on the rural voter survey proper that gets introduced into the book, but I do have other work showing that urbanites are highly aware of you know, what what must be called like some arcane features of our political system. You know, they they especially when the presidential election and when, when that becomes more newsworthy, people are urban people are highly cognizant of the fact that these small states get outsized uh, influence in, in, in the ultimate victor. Um, you know, I, I quote in the book uh, a bunch of news articles written in the aftermath of Donald Trump that, you know, essentially lay the blame for Trump's victory and then the Supreme Court nominations on the feet of the geographic advantage that rural communities have in the U.S. Senate, and those are there. Now, there, there's two caveats, I, and so urban and urban people are aware, and I think that drives a certain amount of political resentment from urban areas towards rural areas, furthering this divide. I'm always willing to admit when I, in my own research, when I'm pleasantly surprised, and when I actually looked at how much outsized influence rural people have in the Senate. 
I was floored. It was nowhere near what I thought it was going to be, right? So one of the classic ways in which we think about the Senate's disproportionate effects is we think about how how many people it would take to create a, a fictional majority, 50% vote in the Senate. And then what I did was I, you know, there was, so scholars had developed measures for looking at this. It's like 17% of the American population, right? So you count up all the small states, get to 50 Senate seats, and you count up their population. It's like 17%, right? So that that is minority rule. What percent of that 17% actually lives in a rural community? About 30, which isn't too much more than the 20% that rural America right, right. makes. So I, I was I was lived, I, I thought it would be higher, but it's still outsized influence. You're absolutely right. I don't always know how much that outsized influence translates to governing outcomes, though. You know, so if we think about one form of you know the main way in which our federal government provides assistance to places it's things it's through grants so very few things are are automatic when it comes to special projects like building a bridge or uh, where a certain tax incentive is going to go i and, uh, and a couple of scholars working you know elsewhere brookings institution at other universities are actually looking into the fact that you know that type of policymaking benefits overwhelmingly places that actually have the capacity to apply and implement that type of assistance. Most rural communities don't. Most rural communities have a government that is partially staffed. And so I, I you know, I think there's there are structural features that complicate that story that, oh, just because Wyoming has X percent more influence when it comes to voting. Do they actually get the the benefits on the back end because there's all these structural features of governance that make it harder to govern in rural parts? So, I mean, I, I will admit that when I uh, observe American politics, I'm a partisan. Um, I would, if I was American, I would support Democrats. I am concerned particularly, particularly now um, about Republicans and, um, and Trump doing well. Now, obviously, in this book, you are distinctly not partisan. You are not here to give the Democrats a roadmap <laughs> to uh, rural victory. But one thing you do point out that is a real danger is basically one party rule in in these in these parts of the country and obviously there are you know urban parts of America where you know it, it's essentially one party democrat rule but what is the danger of so many of these uh, the, these regions in the states becoming relentlessly republican in terms of you know good governance Dan and I often approach the the policy or the partisan questions from different first principles. And I, I know some people sort of might roll their eyes when they think it's a nonpartisan book that concludes quite forcefully, Democrats need to show up. But I believe in that mission. I believe in that conclusion because we know that American democracy does not work when one party can take an entire group of people for granted. We've had lived experience with this type of governance. This is the one-party rule in the South that because the competitive political pressures were not there for nearly a century, um, led to a systematic impoverishment of an entire region. Right? It was easy to just 
leave those folks behind because there was never that antagonistic or countervailing power in elections to say, hey, this, you, this isn't working for us. And I think that is what's happening in rural communities. Look, I, I, I have reservations about a number of, of, of policies, uh, uh, whether it would create opportunity. But I think rural people, all people, deserve to be able to have that conversation, deserve to be able to actually have a choice at the ballot box. And what you've seen as distressing as you know, seventy and eighty percent returns for the Republican is. What I'm really distressed about is when the Republican doesn't have to run against anybody. They're the only ones showing up because, for a variety of reasons, that Democrat Democrats have forsaken these places. And the reverse is absolutely true in urban America. I will say that at least cities and municipalities at the at local elections have adopted a number of reforms to induce some competition, even when there's only Democrats. Um, and I, I think there it is a fair comparison to make. Alas, I did not write the urban voter. <laughs> well, I want to come back to the um, the role of journalism here. That there's a really interesting category. Uh, that you describe here, the rural rabble-rouser that does fit the stereotypes. To quote the book, uh, the crazy COVID-19 denier, the gun-toting fanatic, the religious seller, the culture war warrior, the animated school board protester, and the rabid Trump supporter are all sort of versions of this. But it's a very noisy but unrepresentative minority that that is not your typical um, rural voter. In fact, of course, your typical voter in Britain, as in America, is not massively engaged with politics anyway. But then there's another startling statistic that one half of all news stories about rural America in the period you studied mentioned Trump. And I wonder whether there's a kind of unwitting complicity there between the rabble rousers and the media to create this very vivid, very powerful, and in, you know, in some cases, entirely true stereotype. And that is what gets into the, you know, your average sort of urbanite's mind is, oh yeah, that's the kind of person in, in the countryside. Right. And to be clear, I don't think it's, um, I think it's different than what, what we were talking about earlier with the, the creation and the campaign craft of a narrative about real America. There, this isn't malevolent. Uh, I, I remember in, when I was writing the, when Dan and I were writing this chapter. I was driving in from where I live in rural Maine. I was driving into the office, and it was in the days before the presidential uh, or the midterm elections. Excuse me. And I was listening to NPR, and this NPR reporter, you know, knows that. You know, the rural vote is going to be important, right? So goes to find the rural voter in Sheboygan, confesses on air. Like I spent all day in downtown Sheboygan, right? a small town. I think of about fifteen thousand people. I, I might be off by a few thousand, but you know, a, a good place where you might get people that that think of themselves as rural, and certainly when they vote, typify this trend of increasing Republican support. Confesses on air. I spent all day. Couldn't find anybody to talk to me. I finally am driving around, and I saw somebody's house with uh, a, a dozen campaign signs in their front yard. Yeah, and and that guy talks to him, and that guy 
tells him what he's thinking, and then he begets, he becomes the voice of rural America. Now, as you mentioned, right, this group of people, which we identify through two basic questions, you follow the news very frequently, and you posted something political online within the, within the last 24 hours. That group of people is more likely to hold extremist positions in terms of, uh, of holding racialized stereotypes about why, why non-white Americans are poorer than average. They are more likely to identify as extremely conservative. They also happen to be wealthier. Right. Um, they also happen to uh, not think that things are going so bad in their community, that children don't have to move away. So they're more likely to hold the stereotypical, like, oh, rural America, just don't go out there unless you want to meet the crazies. They're also less likely to tell the important stories that Dan and I think rural Americans, that, that's motivating a considerable part of rural America. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Nicholas F. Jacobs. Thank you very much. I really appreciated the questions. The Rural Voter is out now, published by Columbia University Press. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or reviewing us on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon, where you'll get early episodes without ads and with bonus goodies. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker Daily USA was presented by Dorian Linsky. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Chris Jones and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Simon Williams. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Mm-hmm.